if you would open your Bibles to Acts chapter 1. We're starting over. We're going to get it right this time. (laughs) Acts chapter 1. We've been going through the book of Acts now for uh, eight months, preaching through it. And one of the themes that we have been highlighting all the way through is the rise of the Christian church. Uh, We live in a particular day and time where the Christian church, especially in the United States, for the last 20 years or so has been in steady, not steep, but steady decline. It has been discouraging, disconcerting for many, but I hope that from our series that this will have been an encouragement to you. Uh, through our study in the book of Acts, to see the resiliency of the Christian church. Because it is Christ's church. He has established it. He sustains it. And he promises to us that it will prevail. He says, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And so, the rise of the Christian church, as we see in the first chapter of Acts... Uh, really began with a bit of a misunderstanding in Jerusalem between Jesus and his disciples shortly after his death and resurrection. And they have this conversation which starts in Acts 1-3, and this is what got everything going here. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, he was eating with them. He gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It's not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. Starts with a misunderstanding, and from here we see the power of God Uh, empower the disciples and the apostles to lay the foundation for the church to come. We might observe two things here right out of the gates, though. First of all, their vision was way too small. Way too small. As As the Jewish community is expecting the Messiah to come, particularly at this moment in time when some think he has arrived, the natural conclusion was, well then, he has come to reestablish Israel to reestablish a self-governing geopolitical kingdom to kick out the Romans from their oppression, or as I've joked, which is more funny to me than everybody else, they were just expecting him to make Israel great again, right? Blue mega hats as far as the eye can see. We might say their vision is too small, too small. And then secondly, they're going to need help for this massive mission That is what Jesus is really calling them to, a gospel that would save the world, a much bigger vision. So what's key to recognize here is that Jesus did not send them out, did not send them to carry out his mission by their own skill and power, 
But amazingly says, wait, don't go anywhere until the Holy Spirit comes upon you, the source of power, and then you will be ready to carry out the mission of God. Uh, I also think it's important to notice here uh, what their mission wasn't. Their mission was not to bring in or usher in the kingdom of God. That wasn't their task. And there are many false teachers today that assert that, be uh, on guard for that. They are rather to be witnesses of Jesus Christ and of the coming kingdom of God. Not bringing it in, not ushering in. It is through faith in Jesus, understanding that we are reconciled to God through him, so that when the kingdom is uh, does arrive when he brings it back, we are citizens of that kingdom. That's our mission, not to bring about the kingdom, but rather to bring people into the kingdom through, by being witnesses to them. And so as we cast forward from this first chapter to the last chapter, so now you can turn to Acts 28 and you are relieved, we ought to recall that through this whole book, what we have seen, what we have witnessed, is the rise of the Christian church according to the power of God. God's power, God's presence, has led to the fulfillment of his promise. It is he who enabled his disciples, by the Spirit of God, to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now, I think uh, most of you sitting here who are believers in the gospel of Jesus Christ, you know this is good news. You know how good it is for you. And you know that it's good news that your friend and your neighbor, your family member, your loved one desperately needs. But I think many of us can feel uh, incapable or insecure, ill-equipped for the task of being Christ's witnesses And I think today our passage reminds us that while this is the mission given to us and the gospel entrusted to us, we also have the power of Almighty God within us by His Spirit to carry out this mission. And that's the big idea in your outline this morning. By giving us His Spirit, God has given us power to carry out His mission. If you weren't with us last week, we tracked Paul's journey from Caesarea where he had been held Uh, in prison for two years, and he had this long-term desire to finally get to Rome, sort of a beachhead for mission throughout the world, a strategic location. And he is on his way and excited about this. He's finally being deported. He's going to stand trial before the emperor there with great hopes of being exonerated. And finally, it seems like, well, the wind is at his back. It's blowing the right direction, and then he's shipwrecked. The fourth time in his apostolic career, he's shipwrecked. By my count, it was four out of 12 journeys, so those are bad odds, but the man is still alive. Chapter 28, verse 1. Once safely on shore, we found out that the island was called Malta. The islanders showed us unusual kindness. They built a fire and welcomed us all because it was raining, uh, because it was raining and cold. Paul gathered a pile of brushwood, and as he put it on the fire, a viper driven out by the heat fastened itself on its hand. Isn't that fastened itself? What a gross picture. I hate snakes. Anybody? That's why I live in Alaska. One of the reasons. Fastened itself on his hands. 
When the islanders saw the snake hanging from his hand, they said to each other, This man must be a murderer, for though he escaped from the sea, the goddess, Justice, has not allowed him to live. But Paul shook the snake off into the fire and suffered no ill effects. The people expected him to swell up or suddenly fall dead, but after waiting a long time and seeing nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and said he was a god. There was an estate nearby that belonged to Publius, the chief official of the island. He welcomed us into his home and showed us generous hospitality for three days. His father was sick in bed, suffering from fever and dysentery. Paul went to see him, went in to see him, and after prayer, placed his hands on him and healed him. When this happened, the rest of the sick on the island uh, came and were cured. They honored us in many ways, and, and when we were all ready to sail, they furnished us with the supplies we needed. First point I want to draw out here, we're just going to make three, three points about our passage and then one big point over the whole book here. The first point is this, that Paul is a faithful servant of Christ wherever he is. If you think over Paul's ministry, it's hard to almost pinpoint any time where it seems like he was in the right place at the right time. The headwinds always seem against him. There's always sort of turmoil around him. And if you think about his general pattern of of ministry, on his mission trips, he would go into the synagogues where the Jews were gathered together, looking and hoping for a Messiah, and Paul would announce to them, Jesus is him the one we've been waiting for. He appeared to me on the road uh, to Damascus. I've seen the risen Lord. He is God's Messiah. This would be received by some, rejected by others, but the common pattern was those who rejected it got so angry at him that they threatened to kill him and he had to push off to the next town. In Philippi, he was put in prison for casting out a demon. In Ephesus, a riot broke out, so they had to scuttle him out of town. In Thessalonica, a mob came after him. In Jerusalem, the Jews thought that he was desecrating the temple, and the Romans thought he was a terrorist, so he was arrested. He was held in prison in Caesarea for two years, even though he he was not convicted of anything, he was just held there to try to extract a bribe. The Jews were so angry with him that they tried to ambush him and kill him on the way there and try to get him released again so they could kill him on the way back. Finally, he gets on a ship headed the right direction, only to learn that he's headed for disaster and it's going to crash. And so when we look at the life of Paul, we might say, this guy's never had an easy moment here. It's never been cake for him. There's like one stint in in Ephesus in chapter 19 of the book of Acts where it says that, and Paul taught at the lecture hall of Tyrannius for two years. That's it. I think that was the easy time. And the rest of it, just hard. The rest of the time, Paul's been like a boxer, you know, stick and move, right? It's just been tough. But the ministry tap for Paul was never turned off. He continued to serve faithfully against all of the headwinds, against all of the adversity in every port. He is a faithful servant for Christ wherever he is. In our passage here, he's eager to get to Rome and stand trial where he knows he will be acquitted or expects to be acquitted, wants to get the gospel out. He's he's enthusiastic about that. Instead, he finds himself crashed on the beach in Malta, delayed again, foiled again. 
And um, yet, Paul doesn't pout. He looks at the moment and he sees an opportunity. People are sick and God enables him to heal. There's an old saying that I heard um, many years ago back in college when I was at Biola, uh, and it was this, that life happens when we're making plans. And I like that. That resonated with me. I'm a planner. I'm a long-range planner. In fact, fight number three for me and Amy. Amy and I only have three fights, okay? One of them is this one, because I'm long-range planner, and she's right now, especially when it comes to budgeting. I'm like, retirement's looking great. She says, we have bills this month. Oh, we're in two different places here. So I'm this long-range strategic planner, and I, I really delight in that. But I sort of was confronted with this idea that you can get so busy making plans about the future... You can miss life in the moment. And I thought, that, that's a good correction for Eric, to be where you are, to be all here, to enjoy life as it's unfolding. Now, I want to take that saying and co-opt it and change it and make it my own and say this, ministry happens while you're making plans. So easy for us to have big plans, big strategies. I'm going to do this Bible study. I'm going to serve on this board. I want to speak at that event. I want to go to this conference. I want to get this degree. We can have all of these sort of long-range plans, not bad to have, but we can have them at the expense of ministry at the moment. There are opportunities for Christian service to be done every moment of every day, whether it's putting chairs up after the service, which we'll need, second service, by the way. Or greeting people in the foyer. Not because you're on the greeting team or because you signed up, but because you're a Christian and this is your church family. Making a meal for another family that's going through a tough time. Watching a, some, the kids of a, a, of a family friend so they can go out on a hot date. Offer a patient listening ear to a friend who needs to vent and just listen. I seriously... I could support, I believe this with all my heart, I could support a full-time job if I charged $50 an hour and just said, come on in, I'll just listen. I think I'd be busy full-time and then some. People need to be listened to. Offer a prayer for someone who tells you about the grief that they're going through. Proverbs 3.27 says, do not withhold good from those, uh, from those to whom it is due when it's in your power to act. Do not say to your neighbor, Come back tomorrow. I'll give it to you then when you already have it with you. Ministry happens in the moment, oftentimes when we're making big plans. I think Paul here, he really could have pouted about this, right? He could have found himself on the island of Malta and kind of seeing sort of their superstitious ideology, laughing to himself. And he could have thought, you know, I'm kind of a big deal. I'm a big deal. Chief apologist of the church. I'm going to change the world. I'm supposed to be in Rome so I can change the world from there. And he could have pouted. And instead, what he does, he's going to change the world for this guy. This guy who has a need. He kneels at the bedside, he prays, and he heals him. Paul serves where he is when it's in his power to act. So my encouragement to you, serve where you are. Ministry happens while we're making plans. Verse 11. After three months, we put out to sea in a ship that had wintered in the island. It was an Alexandrian ship with the figurehead of the twin gods, Castor and Pollux. I don't know why Luke thinks we need to know that, but nevertheless. We put in at Syracuse and stayed there three days. From there, we set sail and arrived at Regium. The next day, the south wind came up, 
And on the following day, we reached Petioli. There we found some brokers, or some brothers and brokers, brothers and sisters who invited us to spend a week with them. And so we came to Rome. The brothers and sisters there had heard that we were coming, and they traveled as far as the Forum of Appius and the three taverns to meet us. At the sight of these people, Paul thanked God and was encouraged. When we got to Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with the soldier to guard him. So second point here, Paul is a faithful witness for Christ wherever he is. Not just in ministry and service, but he expresses the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. He articulates it. He speaks of it. So first of all here, we get this great sense of relief from Paul. If you can imagine, he's been longing to get to Rome for years, probably up to like five years now, continued to be foiled along the way, and now he's here. He, he's arrived. He is setting a foot on the place he has longed for. You might also think maybe he had some misgivings. How will the Christians here receive me? Do they know of me? Or is this going to be contentious again? How will I be received? And they come from a long way, more than 30 miles, to greet him and to welcome him here. Um, now, this, this all sounds pretty good and pretty wonderful, except for this last little bit here with a soldier to guard him. He's under house arrest. He has some relative freedom, except there's one guy with him all the time. And you better believe that guy got an earful, right? You know, how many times did Paul talk to him? But I, I hear this and I think, once again, this, would be, this sounds terrible to me. Uh, it might surprise some of you, uh, maybe not all of you, but I'm an actually a pretty incredible introvert. I used to be an extrovert, and then I became a pastor, <laughs> and now I'm an introvert. Uh, I think it's a, sort of a, an effect of ministry. I love you all. I love you all, but you're everywhere, you know? <laughs> you're everywhere. It's a small town. It's a big church. I feel it, you know? Uh, you're everywhere. I was at, well, I was in Talkeet now a year ago, sitting on a deck having lunch on vacation, and I got a text, and I looked at it, and it was Amber, by the way, and she said, how's lunch? And I was like, what? And I looked up, and here they are walking right by. <laughs> you guys are everywhere. I, I, I like being alone. I really do. I think I'm fascinating. I'm, one, I'm my favorite person, you know. I, I can't imagine a guard being there all the time. All the time? Give me some space, bro. Let me ask you this. You're under arrest, okay? You're under arrest. House arrest, you've got a guard there all the time. How do you spend your time? What, what do you do? Reading? Oh, there we go. What about this one? Hit the weights. Time to get fit. Finally, got all this time. I'm going to get ripped. Netflix binge. Do they have Netflix in prison? I don't know. But good time to catch up on some of those shows. What's this Ted Lasso I'm hearing about, right? Maybe it's time to get some tattoos. You've always wanted a sleeve and you've got time to do it now, right? It's not like you're going to get fired or anything. Online school. You're going to get a degree. You're going to make something of yourself when you get out. Stamp out some license plates. Do some service. See if you can knock off a few years for good behavior. What do you do? What's fascinating to me about Paul is how he uses his time when he's under house arrest. That is, he writes to other Christians. He gets the pen out. And I think how easy would it be for Paul to be frustrated and to whine to God in prayer, right? God, I've been your faithful servant. I've been your faithful witness. 
I've done everything you've asked. This has been hard, by the way. Long to come to Rome. I'm here. I'm ready to speak. Give me a stage. Give me a lecture hall. Let's go. Instead, I'm under arrest. Why don't you free me from this cage, God? But instead of whining, Paul gets writing. And from him, we have what we know as the prison epistles of Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. And here again, I think we see the sovereignty of God who magnifies our acts of service and obedience, and he makes much of them. Paul, as far as I know, probably believes he's just writing letters. But in actuality, under the inspiration of Scripture, or the inspiration of the Spirit of God, he's writing Scripture. That's not going just to a city or a community of people, but it's going to serve the church for millennium to come. Just acts of obedience in the moment. And that's not his only witness. Verse 17. Three days later, he called together the local Jewish leaders. When they had assembled, Paul said to them, My brothers, although I have done nothing against our people or against the customs of our ancestors, I was arrested in Jerusalem and handed over to the Romans. They examined me and wanted to release me because I was not guilty of any crime deserving death. The Jews objected, so I was compelled to make an appeal to Caesar. I certainly did not intend to bring any charge against my own people. For this reason, I have asked to see you and talk with you. It is because of the hope of Israel that I am bound with this chain. They replied, we haven't received any letters from Judea concerning you, and none of our own people who have come from there reported or said anything bad about you. But we want to hear what your views are, for we know that people everywhere are talking against this sect, right? This emergence of Christianity, the rise of the Christian church. They arranged to meet Paul on a certain day and came in even larger number to the place where he was staying. He witnessed to them from morning till evening. He witnessed to them from morning till evening, explaining about the kingdom of God, and from the law of Moses and from the prophets, he tried to persuade them about Jesus. Some were convinced by what he said, but others would not believe. Boy, on one hand, you might think Paul's just getting in here to Rome. Maybe he kind of wants to let the dust settle, get his you know, arrangements figured out, uh, kind of figure out which way the wind is blowing about him, and take it easy before he gets speaking too much. Uh, but no, day three, it's go time. He calls... The, uh, the Jewish leaders in that they might hear from them. And I think what I, want, what I want to draw out here is just, again, his readiness to be a witness for Christ. He is an example for us that we need to be a witness for Christ wherever we are. Our third point this morning, Paul gives a faithful message for Christ to whomever will listen. Verse 25. They disagreed among themselves and began to leave uh, after Paul had made this final statement, the Holy Spirit spoke the truth to your ancestors when he said through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will listen. 
This is a fascinating thing that Paul brings out here. One of the things that I, I, I want to focus on is the idea that the gospel has sharp edges. The gospel has sharp edges. It is good news, right? But it is only good news for those who receive it. For those who reject it, it is also a message of judgment. What it tells us is that all of us have a default position as we come into this world that we're sinners. Adam sinned on our behalf and we inherited the guilt and consequence of his sin and his sin nature and we ourselves have sinned our whole lives. We are therefore aimed at and ready for right judgment from God. The gospel says that there is an opportunity for us to be rescued from that certain judgment that by trusting in Christ, the judgment falls upon him in his sacrifice and not upon us. Our sins paid for in his death, his righteousness granted to us that judgment does not await us, only exoneration because of Christ. The gospel is good news, but only to those who receive it, to those who reject it, it's a message of judgment. And Paul lets these people know who are about ready to reject it or have not yet received it that that's the case. It has this dual effect. Paul speaks to the same dynamic uh, to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 2, verse 14. He says this, But thanks be to God, who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal possession. I want to stop right there so you understand that picture. In the ancient world, the custom was that a conquering uh, a hero would sort of come in and take over a region and then take captives from that region who would then become part of their kingdom and they would lead them into a victorious kingdom and they would sort of belong to them. And Paul is drawing upon that imagery saying, you were once part of the dominion of darkness, but Christ has defeated that and taken you as captives. That sounds like a bad thing, but it's a good thing for we're brought into a victorious kingdom and he's leading us as his own possession. And he uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one, we are an aroma that brings death. To the other, an aroma that brings life. And who is equal to such a task? So if I can paraphrase this a little bit, Christian, you smell. You smell. Campers are over here, right? Our Lyla folks. We all smell. To some, we smell of good news of the aroma of Christ because they share that belief and that understanding that we've been rescued from the weight and consequence of our sin. But to those who reject it, we just smell. We smell like death because our hope pronounces a kind of judgment on them too. And that's what's tough for us, right? When we share the gospel with somebody, we know that we are announcing the possibility of life, but we also know that we're telling them you live under the threat of judgment and death. And that is why Paul says at the end there, who is equal to such a task? But I'll tell you, Christian, the answer is you are, because the power of the Holy Spirit is within you. And it's the Holy Spirit of God and not you that transfers people's citizenship from this domain of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved Son. The Holy Spirit of God does this. Verse 30 and 31, these two glorious passages in closing here. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him 
he proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Paul finally hits this plateau that he's been desiring for. Funny thing here, Paul's been brought to Rome to stand trial. We're not told about the trial. Dr. Luke doesn't record it for us. Paul had called in the Jews to speak to them, but there's no Roman trial that we're made aware of. I think it did happen. In fact, um, we believe church history says that Paul was actually eventually released and traveled around again back to Ephesus and maybe even as far as to Spain and then was arrested again and ultimately killed in Rome in a second arrest. And if you're interested in chasing that out, I put a little timeline in your bulletin there. Um, You can look that over. But I think we get this beautiful, glorious closing here. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And the point that that gives us is this. In all of this, God's power and God's presence gives the results. Uh, Over the years, I want to illustrate this. Over the years, I have, um, there are a number of... um, recreational interests that I have, that's actually probably fight three and a half for Amy and me. I have probably more recreational interests than a fella should, but, um, but I do. And a couple of them that I, I like, I notice the ones that I enjoy uh, often involve working with a piece of equipment that's not just a mere matter of strength, so to speak. Cross-country skiing. I like skate skiing and If you know anything about skate skiing, you've got this camber to the ski, and the idea is to depress it and get the energy transfer to you and to do this sequentially again and again and again and maximize that efficiency and uh, ideally travel fast and smooth and far, right? Uh, Another one that I've enjoyed over the years, although less and less, has been golf. And if you know anything about golf, this is not a sport where you just swing harder to hit further, right? Right? Think about taking out a big driver. It's this whippy thing with this, this you know, very um, uh, kind of a graphite shaft or whatever. And the idea, of course, is that as you accelerate through, you're unwinding this, the head of this shaft of this thing. So when it comes, it whips the ball off of the ground, right? It's not just about grab it and swing as quick as you can. Uh, and there's another bit of recreation. Doug, I'm going to need some help now. So Doug's my equipment manager uh, this morning. Uh, it's also fly fishing season. Did you know? So this is my newest passion. Thank you, Doug. Actually, if you just stay right here, I'm going to send this back with you in a second. And fly fishing is similar to golf and even to skiing. This is nice. I can really, get, you know, some of you guys are acting up. I might keep this around. <laughs> Once again, the idea here is that you can't just take this thing and swing harder and cast further. It's about a transfer of energy. You're pulling the rod back, and that, see how whippy that is? You're getting that rod to bend at the, at the tip here, where the energy is stored, and as it comes back, you cast your line backwards, and then you come back again forward. I got it, it's all right. <laughs> it's not just about speed, it's about technique. As the user of a fly rod, you're, you're basically just going from 10 o'clock, 2 o'clock on a plane. 10 o'clock, 2 o'clock. And the energy transfer is all in the rod. It's not in the might of your hand. And there is, thank you, there is, let's give Doug a hand. <laughs> there is in this a spiritual lesson. We do not carry out the great commission of God simply by our mere force of our efforts but through the obedience 
of what God has given to us to do. And it is in the power of God and in his Holy Spirit who indwells us, who has baptized us, who will carry out his promise as we are faithful and obedient to him. We give the obedience, and it is God's power that gives the results. I want to give you one last picture of this this morning, uh, and it's a video of a very sweet ministry to this church. Uh, Meet the Needy, over 20 years now. And one of the things I would say about this ministry is that it was started with fear and trepidation, embraced and adopted with concern, and after 20 years, because of the obedience of some, God has magnified the impact and it has become beautiful because of the Holy Spirit's power and presence.